Live from Spain, this is The Drive Home with Harry Waters. Hello everybody, good evening, good afternoon, good night, wherever you may be joining us from. Um, I hope you're well, I hope everything is treating you well. Um, and I hope the sun is shining on you, if that's, if that's the kind of weather that you like. Um, the sun is certainly shining here in Seville. It is a, a, a brisk 35 degrees um, beaming in through my office window. So I've got the, the big blinds down. Um, it is warm. I can't believe that a week ago it was chucking it down with rain. And now it is this hot. Um, I guess that's what you kind of expect from spring usually. But it's certainly not what I'm used to the last decade or so here in Seville. So, um, yeah, it is full-on summer mode now, which is always a treat. Um, so uh, how are things with you? I hope they're well. Uh, some news um, that I feel I should share with you today. Uh, lots of news, in fact. All the news. I'm like a big old news guy. Um, <laughs> this will be the final drive home with Harry Waters. I hear a, a collective gasp in the air. Everyone's like, no, what's going on? Don't say that, Harry. Don't worry. I'm not leaving. Um, simply changing time slot. So when I return from a small break, I will be coming back at a later time of 6 p.m. Uh, British time, so 7 p.m. here in Spain or wherever else you may be. It's basically a little while later. Um, so don't worry. The, the show will still exist. It would just be in a slightly different guise. Um, so don't worry about that. That's good news. So my last ever drive home guest is here today. I can't wait to talk to him. He will be here very shortly. Um, but before we do that, let's fill each other in on what's been going on the last week or so. Uh, so since uh, we last met, I have been to the town fair, which I, I went to right after the show last week. Um, it's a, a huge spectacle, a huge event here in Spain, and it's also basically one giant COVID fest. Um, and everybody in my family caught COVID, got over COVID, um, and we're all negative already. So it was a, a pretty spectacular town fair, to be honest, um, where everybody shared as many viruses as they could. Uh, apparently, the the gripe A, which is the flu A, I don't know what it would be called in English, is also pretty prevalent at the moment. Um, so yeah, that was that was different. Uh, and I won't be back on the air until June. This is my last show before June. Because why do you why Harry? Why are you going? Why are you leaving us? It's okay, guys, don't cry all at once. Um, I have got a fairly exciting week ahead of me, maybe my most exciting week ever professionally. Possibly. I'm not really sure. Is that true? Yes, it's true. It's definitely true. This Saturday, I am uh, heading up uh, in a car share to Santander, which is about nine hours away, to deliver a talk all about speaking exams and some ways of uh, dealing with speaking exams. Because there are times when I forget, Harry, you are a teacher trainer. You're not just an environmental activist. There are other strings to your bow. And this is another string to my bow which I am delighted to be able to be using for arrows of knowledge straight into people's heads, not in a painful way, 
a good arrow of knowledge, not a bad one. Anyway, so I'm off there. Um, then on Wednesday, I'm off to Belfast because I have a, a few talks in Ayatefel. Um, And then on Friday, I'm off to Paris as I'll be speaking at the Change Now Summit, which, by the way, will also be spoken up by people like <coughs> Amy Meek from Kids Against Plastic, who was a previous guest, and uh, the legendary Dr. Jane Goodall. So... Um, quite excited about that. It's going to be massive. Um, I will very shortly be bringing in, um, as I mentioned, the final drive home guest, uh, Tom Stewart or Thomas Stewart. Uh, he will be here very shortly. Um, so hold on to your hats, of which I bought a new one today. Actually bought a new item of clothing for the first time in I don't know how long. However, it was from a shop that is 114 years old, a local shop as well. Um, we'll talk more about that later. Um, we'll be back very shortly after the news, so stay where you are. We'll be back with uh, Tom very, very shortly. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
Research Ed event took place recently at King's Leadership Academy in Warrington and was attended by more than 300 teachers from settings across the UK. The full day consisted of over 40 sessions given by leading academics and educationalists, including Tom Sherrington, Paul Kirshner and Zoe Enser. The day was arranged by Mike Childs and Sarah Vernon, who are both senior leaders at King's Leadership Academy in Warrington. Mike Childs said, Research Ed events present the very best thinking and approaches in education, which is why the event became a sellout with people travelling from all over the UK. The ability to put many sessions online meant we could allow over 400 to attend either in person or virtually. In Scotland, Water Safety Scotland, in partnership with Education Scotland, has launched the first of its free educational resources for schools. This new initiative affirms its commitment to reducing accidental drowning deaths in Scotland by 50% by 2026. Laura Erskine, Education Subgroup Chair for WSS, said, On average, there are 96 water-related fatalities in Scotland each year. We want to encourage safe and responsible access to Scotland's waterways, which can be a positive and enjoyable experience for young people when coupled with appropriate risk awareness and education. WSS aims to roll out the next phase of this initiative in late May and will continue this during the rest of 2022. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello. This week, we're going to take a look at the much-coveted presentation clicker. It's a must-have device for a lot of teachers out there, as it allows you to move slides whilst AFK. For those new to 2-Minute Tech, AFK is away from keyboard. Ranging in price from £8 to £30, this classroom essential allows you to stretch your legs and make a few shapes while you dance around the room. Some of us have a mandatory piece of blue tack over the built-in laser pointer. Others have invested in a bit of duct tape. So we ensure the device meets health and safety regulations. And most of us have a small stash of AAA batteries in a secret place that we never admit to having. Well, Clicker, I'm telling you to stand aside. The mini wireless multimedia keyboard is taking your place. Having a lower price range of £8 to £15 and being able to do everything that Clicker does except blind pupils as it has no laser pointer and, wait for it, it is rechargeable. You have full keyboard and mouse control from anywhere in your classroom. You can move slides on, Alt-Tab to switch applications, type, use Spacebar to stop and start YouTube clips for questioning. Battery life is quite honestly 
technically ridiculously long and if it runs out a five minute charge on USB lead will get you through your lesson. All I can say is if you're considering replacing your clicker or are simply a gadget magnet this is a must have. Search for mini wireless keyboard in any online shop. The only thing I'd say is get one with a light up keyboard if you present with the lights off. As always don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Thank you very much. It's funny that uh, mention of, of a clicker. I, I I bought one just the other day as mine had broken. Um, so anyway, uh, who's here now? It is uh, Thomas. Thomas Stewart is here. He is, well, he's, he's more than just one thing. Um, here's many things. Uh, he's, as we were mentioning Bose earlier, uh, he has many strings to his. Uh, he is the senior teacher and head of content at uh, Intrepid English. Um, we have in the past spoken to their, their glorious founder. Um, but he is also an award-winning poet. Um, I'm going to get him to tell you a little bit more about that as I bring him in. Um, so, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, I, I also, before I do um, let you tell us a little bit about yourself, which, which you will, um, I, I would like to say, um, Lorraine mentioned about your voice. Okay, she mentioned you've got a lovely voice. And I was like, Okay, I've heard lovely voices before. You know, I've, I've I've heard a voice or two in my time, and then I did hear a snippet of of, of you speaking, and I must admit, everybody's in for a bit of a, a bit of a treat for the next uh, hour and fifteen minutes because you do have a really lovely voice. Oh well, thank you. I mean, yeah, she set the bar high when she said that my voice was similar to Stephen King's. I'm like, that's royalty right there. That's the king of narrating audiobooks. So thank you. It, it's it's definitely up there, that's for sure. Um, so, Thomas Stewart, tell us about yourself. Uh, yeah, where shall I start? Maybe start in the present and work our way back into the past. Um, yeah, currently I am the head of content and senior teacher at Intrepid English, as you said. Um, and I'm a poet and a writer. Maybe it's easy to go back to the past. Um, I started doing my BA at the University of South Wales, and that was looking at English. Kind of neglected language at that point in my life. Um, was only interested in language and power was the course that I took. It's all about politics and stuff. Um, and then I did my master's at Warwick and went to Milan to finish that off. Um, and thought I was writing the next fantastic novel. Um, which naturally I was, but you know, no one understood that's what I was doing. Um, and then finished and went home to Cardiff for a bit and then moved to Edinburgh about six years ago. And it was my mum who suggested that I do uh, the CELTA because she's worked in that world for a long time. Um, and I did the part-time course and then 2018 met Lorraine and off we've gone. And poetry took over fiction. Fiction is harder than poetry, apparently, which doesn't add up to how I started. But yeah, that's kind of the, the brush strokes. Very nice. Um, so you started with fiction. That's, oof, that is, that's a, a tough, a tough nut to crack, I must say. Um, 
because yeah I've, I've had so many ideas i thought that'd be great and i was like actually no nobody would like that that was just me that would think that's great um but but how long have you been now i don't want to sound ridiculous when i said how long have you been into poetry when did poetry kind of grab you when did it spark your imagination mm, yeah because i've had a complicated history with poetry like um I wrote an essay about it called The Power of Poetry. I just explored my problems with it. So at school, I hated poetry. I remember sitting down with a guidance counselor being like, I want to study English, but I don't like poetry. And he laughed in my face and was like, well, good luck. Um, And he was right, uh, because I went to college and we studied poetry. And it was exactly what I thought, which is poetry was you either get it or you don't. And if you don't get it, you're an idiot and you're not as intelligent as everyone else. And there's a problem. And that was what poetry was. And even my lessons in college, my teacher, who's a very unenthusiastic poetry teacher, would give us the poem and essentially explain it to us. Um, And I read somewhere recently, I feel like it was Philip Pullman saying it. And he was just like, what an awful thing to have a poem explained to you. Like, where's the fun and joy in that? And I agree with him now. But anyway, hated poetry. Went to my master's to Warwick and was taught by David Morley. And I remember him teaching us about call and response poetry. And it really just resonated with me. It was fun. It was different. He was what I imagined a poet to be. You know, he's like, let's go outside and listen to birds and try and write it down. Um, And I met Philip Gross in my undergrad. And he was also another kind of, it was meeting a poet, I guess. Meeting those two poets that sort of, broke this vision of poetry and they both took me on that journey of like poetry isn't a a right or wrong thing there's also a huge I was almost about to swear that I don't think I should swear Uh, there's a huge amount of poets out there and it's really just finding the ones that speak to you um so I guess it was my undergrad and my master's that it started building and it was in my undergrad I had my first poem published me and my housemate both had poems published in Agenda Broadsheet. Agenda is this really big poetry magazine and a broadsheet is the little thing that they publish, the kind of cast-offs. And we thought this was the beginning of our wonderful poetry career. Um, but yeah, that was that was when it all changed, really. And then, you know, I got the um, Red Squirrel Press got in touch and were like, yeah, we'll publish your pamphlet in two years' time. So I had two years to play around with this pamphlet that completely changed. And I feel like it got more developed, my voice as a poet. So, yeah, it was around the masters that it sort of took off, yeah. I'd say. Um, because that is like what the, the biggest problem for me with with poetry is the way in which it is perceived. You know, when when you hear poetry, <clears throat> all all I ever thought about was, you know, classics you know oh you gotta listen to really old poetry that's just not great and you know it wasn't even until i was studying drama that we got into any of the first world war poets you know and and you're listening to that and it's you know for me that that kind of stuff really can can resonate so well with with anybody at any time you know it's because it, it is slightly it's more modern than you know looking back to to hundreds of years ago it's it's a lot more modern it's a lot more up to date but it also for me conveyed a feeling that that I could really kind of see not necessarily relate to but like mm. 
it, it was really very visual. It was really very poignant. Um, I think maybe just the language that was used as well was, was a lot more simple. But we get stuck on these, you know, these classics and, and, and even First World War poetry and from there. And we forget about now how many poets there are now. Like you said, there are so many and there is such a spectrum of poetry. It's 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 amazing. Yeah. And it's interesting because in Intrepid English, I have a lot of freedom, a ridiculous amount of freedom. So thank you, Lorraine. And I've been tutoring um teenagers who are in school and they have exams they have scottish hires and stuff to do and they've been taught carol ann duffy who has been on the curriculum since i was a kid and they hate her they absolutely loathe carol ann duffy i love carol ann duffy so i was like i'm ready for this challenge but i think what i realized was yeah okay right we really need to look at this curriculum again because all i'm seeing are dead white guys and one woman it's not great and with Intrepid English, and I can develop these classes myself, we're reading Langston Hughes or Wanda Coleman. And Wanda Coleman is a poet that I discovered two years ago, year and a half ago, which in my opinion is 28 and a half years too late. I don't know why. Well, I mean, we know why, but poets of color were not on the curriculum when I was a kid. I've looked at the curriculum. They're not really there anymore. Well, they're not there now. And I just think it's a massive disservice. And I was saying this to a friend of mine. I was like, I've recently discovered June Jordan, another uh, black poet and a woman who's fantastic. And I had this deep sense of shame after I reading her. And I think it was because she's so amazing. The shame I felt was, why haven't I been reading this poet my whole life? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that is a really big issue. As you said, you know, war poetry, of course we can relate, but you know, we're reading the dead white men of that time when, you know, there's um, the Ukrainian poet whose name I've forgotten, who's writing today about a situation. So I think what I've tried to do with intrepid English classes is give that range of, yes, we're going to read Auden because there's something interesting we can discuss about poetry in response to art. But at the same time, we're going to read Dana Smith, who's writing today and is a black man. So it's balancing exactly that. Yeah, um, because when I when I was at school, it was you know it was here we go. We're going to do the Raven, you know that, that's Edgar Allan Poe. We're going to do it, and it was just a bit like, all right, you know, I was like fourteen. I was like, I, I can't, honestly, I, I couldn't give less of 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 a damn about you know Edgar Allan Poe at the time. I was playing a lot of the Legend of Zelda, uh, mm. and Poe to me was just those little ghosts. In the ocarina of time, that's what a Poe was to me, and I was like, "That'll do." You know, I don't, I don't need anything else. You know, and reading, like, I, I really like Shakespeare. I'm a big fan of Shakespeare, but I, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't a huge fan of Shakespeare because it wasn't presented to me in an interesting way. You know, it, it wasn't, and you know, that's why when like you know Wilfred Owen comes along, it, it does seem more interesting. And but you're right, it's it's dead white guys. You know, it's. And and it's still that, you know, there's still Walt Whitman and Hardy and people like that. They're, they're still there. And that's not to take away from what they've done because they did do stuff, but they were, you know, those famous people at the time who, you know, who had the exposure, who had, you know, what was necessary. We, and we don't have the opportunity to listen to other people from that time because, you know, they weren't published. 
which is something that's so good about now because you know you could probably list off 30 fairly famous poets from now that I've never heard of you know I'm not saying I'm a huge poetry fan you know but you could but then you could I don't know you could uh I could list off five poets that you may have never heard of because there are so there's so much talent out there um and it's just it's wonderful to see and wonderful to see more people getting an opportunity more people getting a voice um and I remember oh, it must have been about 12 years ago listening to Saul Williams for the first time and just like my jaw hit the floor you know I was just it's so incredibly powerful absolutely out of this world uh, kind of stuff and just being taken aback and thinking I want more of this I need more of this you know and and trying to get more of that around but what I would really like to know from you is how do you kind of link your poetry to your classes how do you how do you become that guy from your masters that that connects you to the poetry rather than just being we're going to do poetry and all the students going oh mr stewart wants to do poetry again oh he just loves that poetry doesn't he mm. well i mean i think with intrepid english i'm in a privileged position where it's one-to-one -one classes usually so I'm responding to what the student wants. And it's funny you mentioned the Raven because my 13-year-old student loves Poe. Um, and we did the Raven and it really spoke to her. Um, but that's her interest. So it's easy in that way to just tap into a student's interests. Um, but when I'm to, like thinking of tutoring the teenagers who just, they don't want to be talking about poetry, they'd rather talk about anything else. It's uh, the two things that I've noticed is one, removing that sense of you have to understand everything, you have to get it all right. Um, and that sense of foolishness that I felt as well, that you, if you don't get it, you feel like a fool. And that plays into the confidence. Um, so one student I was tutoring, um, there wasn't confidence there at all. And that just kept cutting off any chance to even talk about the poem because they were afraid that they might say the wrong thing. Um, so that's how I work in a sort of like a group setting versus a singular setting. Um, and yeah, you're right about Shakespeare though. Like I wanted to just re respond to that because I love Shakespeare too. And I was taught Shakespeare in high school and my teacher looked at Lady Macbeth, who is my favorite character of all time. And that just really spoke to me. It was, were this dead white guy is talking about a really amazing woman. He has created the best anti-villain ever, who's a woman. And it, it just kind of blew Shakespeare wide open for me that he doesn't have to just be this very binary writer. Like I was tutoring Julius Caesar, which is all about men, but about the toxicity of masculinity. Oh my God, he's got it right. Like he has got it right, right, right. So yeah, as we were saying, like the dead white guys, we don't want to disparage them completely. There is space for them, but the space is widening for others such as Wanda Coleman, Lucille Clifton, who were publishing in the 60s and weren't getting as much attention as Thomas Hardy, as you said. I love Thomas Hardy, but I also love Lucille Clifton. Um, but yeah, that's the way I try and go at it with my students anyway. And also, final thing, if I'm excited, hopefully that excitement is being shared into the students, right?
is exactly that is you know something people often ask me about you know teaching sustainability in the classroom and stuff like that it's you know how do you get them interested and it's like well if you're interested in it they will be interested it's <coughs> sorry excuse me um they they will be interested in it because you are you know when i when i first started teaching i'm a, I'm a big vexillologist i love flags like, i really love flags um and i would always do like, one of my routines would be a flag of the week and we'd sit there and we'd discuss the flag and we'd look at the country we'd look at famous people from the country we'd look at the capital city of the country and we'd you know we'd get all into that and you know i, I bumped into a student of mine from about a decade ago uh and we were having a chat and it's like, I can still show you the the flag of Burkina Faso and I can tell you the capital city is Ouagadougou. And I was like, there you Jump go. In. That's that's literally all I wanted to teach you. There was nothing else involved in our classes. I'm pretty sure as long as you know the capital city of Burkina Faso, then that is, uh, that is that's all I need to know. Um, something else you've mentioned a couple of times now um, with poetry. And it is that, you know, if you don't get it, you're a bit stupid or, you know, or having it just straight up explained to you. Here you go. Here's a poem. This is what it means. Now, poems to me, yes, they all have the root in the meaning of, of what the, the, you know, the writer originally, you know, had planned for it. But they can have different meanings to so many different people. You know, the, the words written by, by Maya Angelou, for example, will speak differently to me um, than they do to an African-American um, in the States. Like, they, they will be, you know, there will be various interpretations. Mm. So, you know, I, yeah, I don't know if, when you're like with your students going through, I don't know, uh, Jabberwocky or, or whatever you're going through, um, how do you kind of get them to, to bring their own meaning to it rather than just have your answer as the right answer. Yeah. Well, this is something I caught myself on is I don't speak because it took me a, like a year to realize the teacher has a lot of power. And if they say their opinion, like this is a terrible poem, that's the theme of the room. We're all talking about how terrible it is. So I, I don't speak originally, like straight away. We, we read the poem and, you know, I, I'm just talking to my students. So my, my first question is, how do you feel? What do you think? Um, and then we go from there. And I, I've, I say this to a lot of my students. If you're studying literature or poetry, you're basically set up to be a lawyer because it's all about finding something and arguing it. And if you've got the evidence to support your argument, you're fine. Unless, of course, you're arguing something completely out there and you've got no evidence then it is kind of wrong. So if I do see a student going like, you know, we've read the Jabberwocky and they're like, this is all about animal abuse. Maybe it is. And maybe they found evidence to support that. And then I'm with them. But if they're like, no, I've decided it's about animal abuse. And I'm like, okay, well, show me in the text and they can't, then there's something we need to talk about. Or there've been occasions where students have taken a word and gone a bit too far with it. So I'm like, you know, oh, that's an interesting interpretation, but you're teetering on the edge of just getting the... the I, I hesitate to say right and wrong because it kind of goes against what I'm saying, but, you know, you you can walk out of something, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a film where, you know, you walk like the Titanic or whatever, and you walk out being like, that's all about 
sustainable ships and how we should it's like no it really wasn't um so you know there is that kind of you got to be in the right pool and if you're in the right pool you know swim away kind of thing because yeah i found now i know you're a movie lover as well um and i was having a discussion with my with my wife the other day we were actually talking about um actually talking about Alice in Wonderland, not the movie, obviously. We're, we're talking about it in general because mm-hmm. um, she's working on a, a photography project kind of almost based around that, but also not that. But anyway, um, and yeah, I we were walking along discussing various meanings of it, you know, um, here, there and, and everywhere. And I, and I kind of thought there's a lot of times when I'll read a movie review or a book review um, or like a theory online, and it's just like, it seems like they've really looked for it within the text, but it wasn't actually implied there. So this kind of sounds like what maybe some of the, the you know, students do where, you know, there, somebody will come up with some like completely madcap theory and, you know, they'll find, I'm doing bunny ears, everybody, I'm doing inverted commas, um, evidence to support it. And, you know, you'll, you'll see the internet blow up with all this and, and you'll just think, I, d- I really don't think that occurred to the author. You know, I really, I, d- I don't think that occurred to the director. You know, I, d- I don't think that's what, you know, this is, that's not what they're trying to do in that episode of Friends. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if, if yeah. you if you know what I mean by that. Well, there's that classic saying, isn't there, of like, you know, the writer um, makes the curtains blue and then the literature student says that's because there's uh, the writer was thinking of feelings of melancholia and the writer just liked the color blue or, you know, they were looking out and saw the sky and they just thought they'd do blue. So there is a sort of, I mean, it's the literature student's job to delve deep and to come up with theories and to be original because, you know, it can get a bit stale if you're all saying your same thing of like, you know, Duffy's poem originally is about childhood. Yeah, okay, yeah, it is. What else can we talk about? Um, but yeah, as you said, like there's a sort of like reining in sometimes with some students where it's like, I appreciate your enthusiasm. I appreciate you want to think big and wide, but you're going too far, friend. You're going too far. Yeah. Um, it's it's nice to see how far they can go sometimes, I guess. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's always good to make sure they're they're brought back just uh, just enough. Um, I, I want to know about your award now, if that's okay. Um, you won an award. Congratulations, by the way. Amazing job. Um, Thank you. Tell us about your award. Thank you. Yes, uh, it was. it's called a New Writers Award. It's from Scottish Book Trust. Um, they give them out every year. Um, they give, I think it's about four or five to fiction writers and three to poets. Um, and... One of those is uh, Gaelic poetry and the other two is just normal poetry written in English. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I grew up in Wales and I love Wales. You know, it's where I'm from. Um, But it's been really difficult to get any work out in Wales. Um, And then I came to Scotland and the Scottish were just arms wide open, I guess, because my surname's Stuart. They're just like, you know, come, please. And uh, yeah, I got a lot from the connections I've made in Scotland and I worked at a place called Love Crumbs. Um, another place I'm still affiliated with and do uh, poetry readings with. But I worked at a place called Love Crumbs, which is two doors down from Golden Hair Books. And um, the owner of Golden Hair Books told me about this award and was like, you should apply because um, she'd read my work. So I applied uh, that year, didn't get it. 
applied again. And then it was COVID times and I was in my flat and I got a phone call from an unknown number and I answer them. I'm not really sure why, but it paid off. Um, and it was Scottish Book Trust saying that I got the award, which was really, really nice. And I just kind of stared into a space for about 10 minutes in silence and just burst into laughter. Um, and yeah, the award was a year, um, a year, it runs for a year. You get some money, which was very nice. I could take like oh, a month good. and a half off work. Yeah, exactly. I cheekily, I won the award for poetry and I spent a lot of the time finishing my novel. Okay. Um, but then I finished a collection and a pamphlet just to make up for that. Um, and I'm sure Scottish Book Trust won't be angry at me. Um, writer. It says writer. You were writing, you know. Indeed, I was writing. That's right. Even though I won the award for poetry, but whatever, it's fine. Um, so, yeah, I, I did that. And then I worked with Claire Askew, a fantastic poet and novelist, probably one of the best mentors I've ever had. And she and I worked on my collection which is currently out in the world right now. We'll see if someone takes it. Um, and she looked at my second pamphlet, which will be out in November. So, Amazing. Uh, and yeah, and then you get support and you get to meet other people from Scottish Book Trust. So that was, it was really, really lovely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, that actually brings me on to an, another little, little question. Um, so you mentioned you weren't, it, it's difficult in Wales. Is that because in Wales, they're looking for more kind of Welsh poetry? Like, in Welsh as opposed to in English you know there there is like a a strong pull towards Welsh my my parents and my my sister all live in Wales um my nieces are in fact both bilingual um, oh, wow. English and Welsh um I am not uh, me either so you know <laughs> um, shame for both of us yeah I don't know if maybe if if that might be one of the reasons behind it um if they're more searching for the kind of Welsh spoken poets um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it could be that I took up poetry around the time I moved to Scotland, but that's not really true. I was working on my pamphlet before I came to Scotland. I don't know, really. I mean, it's not the language as such, because I know there was a big push when I was in high school that uh, the Welsh government pushed people to learn the language. And there was like, you know, if you have the language over someone else, you're going to get the job kind of thing. So there was this push. But in terms of the publishing world, I think what I just discovered was it wasn't as active as Scotland. Um, and I grew up in Cardiff, so it's like the, the capital. Um, and I just found it really difficult. There was Literature Wales, obviously. Um, and then there was New Welsh Review, which wasn't very active. And since there's been things like The Lonely Crowd, which isn't very active. When up in Scotland, you've got things like Scottish Book Trust, which is like an institution to be reckoned with. You've got Scottish Poetry Library, you've got Gutter. You've got Extra Teeth, a new magazine. So there's a lot more life here. Um, I would really love to extend my connections in Wales. The publisher that has my collection at the moment is a Welsh publisher because I address Welsh myths. And my second collection is completely revolutionising. That's a big word. Rewriting. Blow my own trumpet there. Um, <laughs> rewriting a Welsh uh, myth. So I think, interestingly, it was coming to Scotland, having this success that A, made me really appreciate Scotland and B, reintroduced me to my roots as a Welshman. That's awesome. Um, now, my next question is about, again, about poetry, surprisingly enough. Um, so when I came over to Spain, I, you know, I'd read, I tried to read... <coughs> 
uh, Don Quixote in English, and I hated it. Um, it was rubbish. And one of my goals when I got here was to read it in Spanish because I, wa I wanted to see if it was actually all that good. Turns out it is pretty good. Um, but also, I'd read bits of like Lorca, um, uh, but I'd read them in English. I'd read them translated. Now, one of the the, the things for me about poetry is 100% the way it sounds. You know, it's it, it's rhythm, the, the, the way it goes. And obviously in, in Spanish and English, we speak very, very differently. You know, here we have a syllabic term where we say absolutely every syllable of every word. Whereas in, in English, it's, it's a stress tone language. As you know, you're a teacher. Um, so for me, when I, I was reading these these poems in in other languages i know that you know not all poems have to rhyme um please uh, don't make them rhyme but yeah <laughs> but yeah it's it, it didn't they didn't speak to me nearly as much i felt that so much was lost in translation in in poetry and even more so than in literature mm. um and i've tried you know looking at sonnets in spanish and it, it Shakespeare doesn't work for me in Spanish just because mm. it's written in such a way, you know, the iambic pentameter, you need, you need it. You know, it, it's what, it, it, if it isn't there, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't sound right. And I don't want to sound like, you know, somebody who's being you know, stubborn uh, and not open-minded, but it just doesn't speak to me in the same way. So I was wondering what your opinion was on translated poetry. Hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I'll be honest, I don't think I'm looking at my shelves now and I'm like, do I have a lot of translated poetry on those shelves? I'm not sure that I do. Um, I mean, I, there are magazines out there that are working in this world to, I guess, to make this more accessible, where you've got the original poem, the translated poem and the translators in communication with the poet. So there's something there to try and make... Um, that bridge a bit more open, but I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you just because another thing I learned when I went and did my masters was I was taught by David Van, fantastic writer. And he talked a lot about the music of language and so much so that he taught me something amazing, which is like, you can chop out those little, all the little articles and prepositions we stress that our students use. Um, we chop them out. And we, when you do that, you sort of make a music with these words. And it's sort of hard to explain rather than, without me actually just reading his book, but it's, you get this kind of da-dum, 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 da-dum going on with the words. And it, it takes you almost like, you know, water rippling down and it, you go with it. And I don't know if that if that were translated into Spanish, that that effect would would be the same. I mean, I'm an incredibly ignorant person when it comes to languages. I'd really love to learn Welsh and Italian. Those are the two languages I want to learn before I die. I don't know them. Um, so I don't know if I can speak as freely about this subject as I'd like to, but I, my heart's saying there, I do agree with you when we come to this idea of the music of language and the rhythm of language. Yeah, um, that, 
and that's not to say that it shouldn't be translated because I don't think you should. It should in any way be like these are English poems. They are for the English. You know that, that kind of Brexit mentality. No, um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, that, that it maybe loses something in the translation. Maybe it gains something yeah. as well, though. Maybe I don't know. There's a chance because you know, for for me reading um, 100 Years of Solitude, obviously, I've I've still not read it in Spanish because I read it in English and was like. I almost swore then that's incredible you know um yeah you know reading garcia marquez is any of his books to be honest they're they're, they're good enough translated that they're, they're better than good enough they're brilliant um but again i don't know if it is that to do with the music of of language because you don't have it as much in literature well yeah and, and i also i guess just again to agree with you, like that's a novel, isn't it? Um, Hundred Years of Solitude and poetry really depends on that sound. As you said, not all poems have to rhyme, but a lot of poems depend on the rhythm or the sound of it. So yeah, how do you translate that? Um, I don't know, but I I teach to translators um, who are Brazilian and love Hundred Years of Solitude, of course, and we talk a lot about the collaboration between the original writer and the translator and the challenge of translating. And one of my tutors when I was doing my master's was translating a Turkish writer. And luckily he was alive, so she could call him up being like, what do you mean? Um, but there's still that, I don't know, I think it's a, a deeper, darker challenge, darker, a deeper challenge when it comes to poetry. It could be darker, I guess it depends could be on dark. the poem. The Raven, you know, like how are you yeah. going to translate that, you know? Darkly. <laughs> very darkly yeah um yeah you'd expect so from a raven uh, so um we, we've talked a little a bit about about poetry and obviously you, you say you, you've got a novel as well um tell me about your novel a novel uh which one do you want to know about do you want to one uh, uh, well the one i was the good one the good one <laughs> oh god well okay the good one um well this is the one i guess that's like recently um an agent liked but we'll see but anyway it's no there's two there are two novels the one i worked on um over lockdown i, I mentioned this because of your wife's um show which is um it features alice from wonderland um and it features a lot of characters that we know um from books that are in the um public domain so I'm safe for copyright, but basically the, the, I'm hesitant to talk too much about it because I've been writing it since I did my undergrad and I'm terrified that someone will find the idea and steal it. So <laughs> I'll just give you a snippet of that's about a lot. It's basically a political fantasy with censorship and equality at the root of it. But the yes. novel that I guess I'm free to speak about that I've recently finished and sent to agents and we'll see is about um, a kleptomaniac. Um, when I was in 2015, a friend of mine worked on Deal or No Deal, and he messaged me saying he wanted to work on something more creative. So I wrote a short story uh, about a sex addict, of all things. So we made this short film. And then the idea was to do a second part, which was about a drug, a drug addict, and then part three was going to be about a kleptomaniac. Didn't happen, but the idea stayed with me. So I decided to write this story and basically the pitch is it's like Breaking Bad with a kleptomaniac female lead. She steals things and then one thing leads to another and she steals a human 
And then she doesn't know what to do with it because she's very ill prepared for that challenge. Nice. Um, and it just goes on. It goes on from there. And I like that one thing leads to another and she steals a human. It's like, <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a few things in there. I think that's been the thing with the novels. When I told people that, they were all like, how? Why? How does that happen? And when I sent it to the agent, she said something similar. So it was getting into the nitty gritty about this character. And I guess the two things that bring those two projects together is trauma and grief are huge themes in both novels. So... Fantastic. Well, I look forward to reading them, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, now I'd like to talk, if that's okay, a bit more about your about your role. Um, we've talked about how you get, not how you get poetry into the classroom. It sounds like, you know, you're forcing it in there. Just in the um, door before yeah. it shuts. <laughs> in you come, poetry. In you come, mate. <laughs> um, so we, we've talked a bit about that and, you know, the, the way you encourage your students to, to use poetry and maybe even discover their own poetry. I imagine you do. Um, what else do you do other than just poetry? Because, you know, I, I recently realised that, you know, as a as an English teacher, um, I, I also teach about sustainability and, you know, activism and, and becoming a change maker. Um, and people often kind of put that, that hat on me as just being a sustainability guy. Um, but I do have other hats as well, um, strangely <laughs> enough. Um, so yeah, what are your, what are your other hats and, and how do you wear them? Um, well, I mean, again, really fortunate with Intrepid English because Lorraine taps into all of our strengths. So she's collected us and knows what we're all good at. Um, and for me, you know, I really enjoy teaching my students idioms and phrasal verbs, um, for me, like, you know, idioms are such a way into a culture. Um, I was teaching idioms today and I was teaching the um, an arm and a leg, cost an arm and a leg. And we were talking about where it came from and how like there's this theory that it came from the world wars where people literally lost their arms and legs. Um, so I like doing that with my students. I mean, obviously there's the grammar that I will teach them. It's not my most exciting thing. Although I do have a secret soft spot for prepositions. If you want a lesson on prepositions, I'm your man. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, it seems to be more about discussion. So a lot of my students, they come to me because we read novels together. And the way that works is we'll discuss what novel we're going to read. We'll take it in turns reading. They get to read. I get to read to so their practice in reading and listening. We'll talk about it. So it's a lot of speaking. Um, and then there's those kind of concentrated lessons where we'll talk about idioms and phrasal verbs. Um, but yeah, that's really where my expertise lies and like you know you want you come to intrepid english and you want someone to teach you the really nitty-gritty grammar you go to Lida because she's that person um but yeah i think creativity and just a, a kind of freedom comes with my classes where there's a lot of discussion and yeah that's the way i do it i love that that idea of basically you know prescribed lessons um it it, it sounds fantastic because it can it can really allow you to to help your students the way they want to be helped. You know, if if they're if they're at work and they've got presentations on, then you know you can switch it. You don't just have that that rigid um, textbook approach. Now, don't get me wrong; I'm not knocking textbooks. I like textbooks. I write textbooks. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I'm a bit of an idiot if I knock them, but you know they they have a time and a place. Um, 
and and I think as you say with the um, like looking at not necessarily just idioms but you know I was speaking to Hugh Deller a few weeks back about you know chunks of language and, and things that we use that maybe we don't necessarily look at as being idioms but we use it you know we use these phrases all the time and it, it can really help focus in on on culture it can help focus in on um you know certain again prepositions it can and, it, and you can see the, these different areas through looking at the language rather than looking just at the grammar you know and focusing on that and, and when you're reading books or reading poetry it it lends it beautifully to doing that you know you can you can find that phrase in there and you can you can you can hone in on it you can but there he is using uh, a, a three-word phrasal verb to hone in on to something. hone in on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that kind of the more kind of lexical approach to things, um, I think, is is really fun, basically, as well. Yeah, and just I almost see my classes as like a workshop with my students. Sometimes, like all of us at Intrepid English, we have a different style, but we all kind of come together with the main ethos which is you know this is here to help the student but not just to help them with their commas and their present perfect it's to help them you know expand their mind and question and all that kind of stuff so we're really trying to do that in intrepid english and that's and also what i was talking earlier about giving your student confidence like it's my rule that if a student mispronounces something i don't interrupt them I tell them at the end because it just completely throws them off the track. And then they're like, Oh, do I want to keep reading this book now? Um, so yeah, it's, I'm a very laid back teacher and that's the way I prefer it where there's room for experimentation in the class. And as you said, you know, these, the way we look at language, it's an immense privilege because, you know, I don't look at language that way, but when I'm teaching it and when I'm thinking about it, I do. And it's fun to like, you know, go for a drink with your pals who aren't English teachers. And you mention why do we say on a bike? And why do we say in a bus? And they're like, what? And I spent the whole day thinking about it. So, and also I think the other thing is I'm really honest with my students where if I don't know, I don't know. And we're going to figure it out together. Really. I yeah. don't pretend that I know everything because I don't. So. Is, there is nothing worse in a teacher than that. I think one of the most empowering things that I ever had as a student was when I was studying politics and my teacher was like, I haven't got an answer for you, mate, but I'll find out and I'll get back to you. And I was just like, what? Mm -hmm. You don't have an answer for me? You don't know? You're not just going to make something up on the spot because you're my teacher and I'll believe you? Like, it was, it was mm -hmm. great for me, like, as a future teacher, that, like, really made a, a massive difference now something you mentioned there that i i absolutely love when it comes to teaching and something it seems teachers are often almost forced to forget you know it it is too much about in english it's too much about getting the exam grade getting to the end you know so you know your your present perfect you know your conditional so you can go down you can sit your first certificate exam and when you get to a dependent preposition, you'll be able to guess which one it is because you know all the dependent prepositions and you've learned them and they're in your brain and, and now you know them. So you're a genius. Um, and, you know, so that's one side of, of being an English teacher that's kind of irritating. And another side is, you know, oh, we're teaching them so they can speak English. Brilliant. Yes, we are. 
but forgetting that kind of that deeper role that we have as teachers, you know, you mentioned it there, you know, about giving the confidence and, and empowering people. And, and I truly believe that every subject, every single subject should be empowering learners to do something other than just pass the exam or do really well in the Ofsted inspection. You know, it's so vital that, you know, maths teachers uh, enable people to read statistics properly or maybe help them with their taxes for when they leave or learn a bit about financial management. Because I know that when I was 18 and I came into not a huge amount of money, but, you know, a couple of hundred quid, my instant reaction with a couple of hundred quid is I'm going down the pub, going to spend it all, I'm going to buy my mates, I don't know, what would probably be four beers now with a couple of hundred quid. Um, But back then, we could get at least eight. Um, You know, I think it's so important that the role of a teacher isn't just to teach students, but it is to empower them. It's to help them with their general life education and not simply ticking boxes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you. And it just made me think, there's a film I love called Mona Lisa Smile. Oh, uh, brilliant, brilliant Oh, film. you know it. There you go. Of, of course, course you know it. Of course. How could you not? Um, and I was watching it with my partner, and there's a moment where Julia Roberts says to the class, um, she puts up a piece of art that isn't in the textbook, and they have no idea what to say. And she's like, what do you think? And then they're like rummaging through the book, and she's like, it's not in the book. There's no textbook telling you what to say is it any good? Um, And she's like, you know, you can conform or you can question everything. And my partner turned to me and he was just like, oh, wow, you're this teacher then. You, This is where it all started. And I was like, it must have done because I was obsessed with it when I was a teenager. And it stayed with me since because she just is the perfect teacher. I mean, I always preferred that film from Dead Poet Society. I, 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 I know it's like blasphemy. Oh, really did not just say that out loud. I know, I said it out loud. It really didn't speak to me. You know, there's that episode in Friends where there's this character uh, slagging off Dead Poet Society. And I completely agree with everything she oh. says. Like, oh, he kills himself at the end. Boo-hoo, he can't be in the play. Mona Lisa Smile actually really, that reckons with me when, yeah. I just, but the point of this wasn't to, to lay into Dead Poet Society. It was to say that, yeah, like that teacher really just sort of, and you know, um, the other one with Maggie Smith that I'm forgetting, Scottish, prime of Jean Brodie. Okay. But those kind of teachers that are all about their students opening their minds, questioning everything, exploring, and their job as a teacher is not to just shove all this information in their students' heads so they can spill it out of the exam. It's that they've evolved as a person. And I think without realizing it, I took those lessons on and that's exactly what I want to do as a teacher. I mean, like you look back at Mona Lisa Smart and you look at that cast and you just think, ah, right. Like, they're, they're all massive names now. Like they're, and they're all still going strong. Like it's just Kirsten yeah. Dunst, Maggie Gillenhall. Yeah. Julia Stiles. Julia Stiles. How could I forget? Well, you yeah. did forget. I, I did. <laughs> uh, what's it? Juliet Stevenson as well. Yeah. You know? yeah. Dominic West. Oh my God, Dominic West is in it too. Yeah. yeah. There's another actress I've forgotten, Marsha Gay something. I can't remember what her last name is, but she's the she's like the woman who's in charge of the house that Julia Roberts stays at. But yeah. 
There you go. Um, Fantastic film. It is. It is really good. Um, and yeah, can you imagine if that was like, I don't know, in your teacher training that you had to watch that film. <laughs> it should be. That literally I should think be. Like in, yeah, just in like cell to training or something, you know, you've got your, the books that you need to read, which, you know, read Shriveler, read Jeremy Harmer. Go and watch Mona Lisa's smile. <laughs> like that's a homework, you know, I could get down with. I wouldn't have to go home and sit there just reading through endless grammar books and books about how to teach and just, you know, sit there and zone out for a bit and zone in while I'm zoning out. Um, but we'll be back in a couple of moments to talk more. Don't you worry. Um, more poetry, more from Tom. Um, we'll be back very shortly. Stay where you are. Um, and we'll hear you in a second. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us... You'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. Okay, we are back uh, for the last half an hour. First, I'm going to praise Thomas on using a reusable water bottle there. Um, I believe in praising sustainable behaviour, so good job there. Um, I actually have a, a jar with my water in it. Um, nice. I don't have glasses anymore. It's quite sad. My wife said to me the other day, do you reckon we could maybe 
get some glasses. And I was like, well, we've got jars, haven't we? It's like, aren't they cool enough? Just buy some um, more jam, you know, use it, wash it out. It's fun. Exactly. That's it. Then we've got them. We've got them all. It's funny, actually, because for her, for one of her Mother's Day presents, uh, my, my daughter decorated a jar that we then grabbed some of our roses from the garden and put them in there. Um, so, yeah. If you're looking for upcycling classroom ideas, there you go. Um, Jars all the way. Uh, Just throw it in there. Completely relevant to our conversation. Um, So, Thomas, we've talked a bit about poetry, classrooms, uh, writing. I I want to, we mentioned, sorry, about our attitudes towards poetry when we were younger. Now, I want you to imagine a, you, you have a, a teenager comes into your classroom and you, know, you talk about poetry and they just come up with it. You know, it's just a bunch of old dead white guys. Who would you point them in the direction of first to make them realize it isn't? Mm, well, my heart just said Lucille Clifton, Lucille Clifton, Lucille Clifton, Lucille Clifton, always. Um, she is amazing. But then, of course, I would kind of think about the student I mean I actually had this class where it was a group of Spanish Italian girls um 15 16 and I gave them Nikita Gill's poem called Difficult Damsels and the whole poem is like you know breaking up that um idea of a damsel and they just didn't respond to it at all it was just like whatever like water off a duck's back so I think part of me would be like, okay, what are your interests? But if I didn't know that and didn't have that knowledge and to think of someone who's universal and great and kind of breaks that myth, then yeah, Lucille Clifton all the way. I mean, she wrote a six part poem, imagining God and Lucifer as brothers. And a lot of her work kind of goes back to the Bible, uh, but completely changes it. So, you know, there's like a poem that I love is like a report from an angel about Eden. It's literally like an angel goes down and checks out Eden and then replies back to God. And the the angel is really tempted. This is like kind of post uh, the fall. Um, But the angel's really tempted by how they're just like dancing around and they're free and it subverts what we associate with the fall. So, yeah, I think Lucille Clifton, definitely. I mean, she is a black poet that was writing in the 60s. She had she worked with Toni Morrison, who was an editor um yeah that's who i would say and then i would also say denez smith who's alive today and is writing um about black lives matter about you know a, a police brutality about a lot of the things that we are experiencing and i think it's naive to think that kids aren't aware of this stuff actually part of my essay for my dissertation was arguing that kids want darkness in their fiction they don't want to be pampered um Roll dark. They need darkness. Let's be honest. They need some darkness. It can't all just be, you know, rainbows and and unicorns. Absolutely. I mean, not to knock rainbows and unicorns. By the way, I love no. That. Everyone loves a rainbow and a unicorn, and unicorns can be dark. But Roald Dahl never patronized his audience, and his audience were children. Um, and you look at something like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's literally a slasher film. Like they get picked off one by one. And it's brilliant. And, you know, if you're a nasty person, you get punished. And it's just, that's what kids need. And, um, yeah, that's what I would say. The twits as well, obviously. They, they oh, have a nice come God. up, don't they? I'll tell you what, though. Witches, 
absolutely scared the living daylights out of me when I was a young and I remember reading it just like I was turning the page like trying to look away while I was reading it you know I was about eight reading that was, that's just I just thought everyone was a witch after that I was checking people's shoes like, Honestly, see if they had the squared off toes oh yeah I mean the witches is one of my favorite books ever um when I was a kid all I wanted to be was a witch um, I remember leaving my copy of The Witches out in the rain and I cried because the pages were wrinkled, never could oh. be the same again. But I, I I, don't think anyone watched the film as a kid and didn't want to, like, you know, jump out of a window. I remember running behind the sofa and then coming back, being like, no, no, I'm going to do this, let's go. And then two seconds later, Angelica Houston's pulling her face off and I'm running behind the curtain again. Um this is why I won't watch this new version with Anne Hathaway. It's a complete joke. Throw it in the bin. I'm not going to go near it. But yeah, I mean, I've said this to people. The Witches is essentially the most tense thing ever. You've got one kid in a room with like a hundred witches. It's the most terrifying premise for a book ever. Yeah. So, genius. It really, it really is. It's, it's fantastic. Um, and yeah, now I want to know what is a poet you know we can we, we've talked about all of the, these famous poets you know we haven't mentioned benjamin zephaniah of course who's who's another one who's, who's great for hooking people into poetry um as it were um but what is a poet who who like what's the difference for example between you know would you say eminem is a poet oh okay that's an interesting question i'll come to the eminem point in a second but i think what's a poet it really comes down to the poet. Because if I change that into writer, which was what I was always more comfortable with until poetry sort of took off, um, I kind of saw like, you know, poets as the poets with a capital P and me as the poet with a baby P. Um, but really, I mean, like for me, being a poet meant being published. And I know for other people that that isn't what it means at all. Being a poet can mean writing poems um, or simply, you know, being in that world, it, it really depends on the person. My definition of what a poet is, for me, not for other people, is publishing poems, being active in poetry, reading contemporary poetry, which I think is hugely important, um, and doing the work, really. Um, Stephen King said, you know, you want to be a writer? Write a lot and read a lot. There's nothing more you can do. You know, just do the work. Um, and I've met a lot of poets over my time that don't want to do the work. They just want to, you know, publish that thing and it will be out there and that's it. They're a poet. Tick. For me, being a poet is continuing it. You keep going. Um, and then R.E.M. and M. I don't know, um, because, I mean, I was reading June Jordan and she responds to Eminem quite scathingly in her poem. Um, but... The question then is, you know, is rap poetry? Yes. Um, is music poetry in its own way? Yes. I think like these these forms borrow from each other. So it's not me to shout down that Eminem isn't a poet. My heart says no. But if he wants to call himself a poet, who am I to tell him he's not a poet? It's really up to the individual is what I say. Because, yeah, when I look at, when I look at rap and, you know, so even... You know, rap rock. I'm, I'm a huge Rage Against the Machine fan, and and when I think of you know Zach De La Roca, I think you know when I 
when you read his words, you know, maybe not when you're listening to it, but certainly when you read the words, there's so much poetry in there. You know, it's and, and so much of it's true even to this day, which is kind of scary. Um, you know, the, the things that they wrote in um, in. 1992 still relevant we've got a comment here saying oh why isn't eminem a poet he writes and publishes <laughs> poetry doesn't he i'm confused right i mean that was just me being mean against eminem because i never really liked him like you know i was at school and i liked listening to classic music and i wasn't allowed because i was a boy and i had to like eminem so eminem was just kind of shoved down my throat so i have a beef with him i'm sorry he is a poet i'm gonna say he is for you, whoever you are, reading. <laughs> it's Tom who said that, actually. Uh, it's, it's a fellow Tom. Oh, a fellow Tom. Another Tom. Um, yeah, I because I, I do like Eminem, um, I'm a, and I'm a big fan of quite a lot of rap. Um, and yet, it, I don't know, it seems to me that it could be classed as poetry. Um, but yet again, I'm not a poet, so um, I, I wouldn't want to... No, but I'm going to... I'm going to say he is and um, just talking like to agree with what you just said, you know, like Scott Hutchinson, um, uh, lead singer of Frightened Rabbit, um, Scottish musician was a tremendous poet. Um, and it came through the form of songs. Florence and the Machine, I've got her um, collection that she's calling poems, but they're lyrics to her songs. And as you said, you know, there's so much poetry within them that who am I to say that they're not? So, well, there you go. There's there's nothing I like more than somebody who's willing to to not just be, just stick by what they said because they said it, but to stop and think. Do you know what? I would not, I'm not saying that you're admitting you're wrong, but you're seeing another side of the coin, which is just really really refreshing to see. To be honest, um, really really nice to hear. So I appreciate that very much. Um, and yeah, moving moving back to to the classroom. Mm. Uh, again uh you know as you say you, you teach mostly kind of one-to-one classes and it is kind of a form of you know coaching as as well as as teaching um like in the in the same area as i believe um teaching should be um that's my personal opinion i don't think it is just the nuts and bolts of passing exams and stuff um but yeah how I'm trying to think of a of a of a, of a regular way of saying this. Um, <laughs> uh, how do you approach each of your classes? So you know, it is like each of most of your classes are tailored and one to one. So, how would you approach, for example, uh, a businessman in in Saudi Arabia? How would you pr- approach that class differently to an Italian teenager who's in Scotland? Um, well, I mean. If they don't want poetry or literature in their classes, then they don't get introduced. I'm not going to force the businessman to read uh, Wanda Coleman, even though I think he should. Um, But I'm not going to force him to, because it really, with Intrepid English, is like, what do you want from us? And that's what we're providing. Um, And a lot of the time we have students that want to extend, you know, their business skills. And as you were saying, like their presentation skills. Um, and I can do that. That's fine. I think so. I wouldn't do that with that person. Basically, I do have students that are from a business world and do want to explore literature with me. Um, and that's cool. But when it comes to the teenager, I guess 
Yeah, okay, so there's two answers. One is like it comes down to if they want it and say hypothetically the businessman did, then it's really just like I was saying about the Raven student, like tapping into what they like, but then also giving them something a little bit out there. So, you know, that student that like the Raven likes Gothic stuff, but I gave them Harlem by Langston Hughes, which is not Gothic at all. It's all about um, the American dream and racism and protest and a huge discussion came from it. And I think the reason I did that is because I was like, that student's going to respond to it. I've spent enough time with them. I know they're going to have some response to it. Um, and that's what I would do with the businessman, which actually reminded me of something I wanted to say at the beginning of our chat, which is poetry, when we were speaking about getting it and not getting it, I was talking about Interstellar, you know, Christopher Nolan's film the other oh, day. so good. I've seen it once. And I was saying it to my friend who's watched it a few times. And I was like, the way I feel about that film is I feel like it's poetry because I don't completely get it but I have an emotional response to it and I get something from it. And I feel like it's the kind of thing that I'll go back in and I'll get more from it. Just like when you reread a poem. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there just to go back to our chat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, so a lot, there are a lot of different ways that you approach it. So you're using it like predominantly, you know, for a connection and, and of course for language, you know, as you mentioned with the, the protest and, and those kind of things, it's going to really help, um, engage your students. Um, I, I had a previous guest, as, as I've mentioned in the past, who, who is also a poet. Um, he's also a performance poet um, and a rapper and all sorts of other things as well. Um, he, he wears many hats um, <laughs> within poetry. But yeah, what he does with, one of the big things he does with his poetry and his kind of workshops, basically, he goes into to different schools, um and with the with the kids they they work through you know they'll write a haiku or or they'll you know all sorts of different things that they can do but it's it's all about writing for kind of mindfulness you know so it's not necessarily delving deep into the depths of mental health but more as kind of a release from the problems you can encounter with mental health you know so a way of not bottling everything up inside, a way of getting everything out there, a way of like releasing. Um, and I went to one of his sessions and it's called a detention session, you know, detention, detention, you know, play on words as well there. Mm -hmm. um, and I found like there were moments where, where writing can just do that. It can just like, let, you can let everything out. So I don't know if, if with your students, you've ever tried this approach and if maybe you've suggested that, they try it in their own language first, or I don't know. Um, I mean, it's it certainly happened. I mean, it's something that the students know it's there because a big thing for in my approach is creating that safe space and that trust. So we can have these conversations because, you know, it's not an easy thing to talk about discrimination and protests and stuff unless you, you, you're comfortable speaking with the other person. So the students know that it's there and it has happened in the past. Um, and I think what I communicate to my students is by putting something into words, you're having control over it. So if you've got mental health issues and you're writing about it, there's a way of putting it into words as a way of making it real. And therefore, if it's real, it's, it's not as abstract as it is in your head. You can almost hold it like on a piece of paper. Um, 
And I think that's hugely important. So I, I always encourage my students to do it. I don't necessarily encourage them to do it in the class because I don't want to overstep, but they know they can. And as I said, it has happened. Um, and we've talked about it and gone down that road. Basically, yeah, like, as I said, the students lead always with me. Um, so if the student wants to talk about mental health and they want to write about mental health, I'm here for it. Yeah, um, and yeah, something that I, I really loved about this, you know, it, you know, he doesn't necessarily go in and say, hey, everybody, we're going to talk about sad things that have happened and, you know, we're going to get through this. And what he does is encourage, like, a love of poetry. You know, he goes in there, he takes in his, his guitar, his loop pedal, um, and it becomes this whole performance to, to engage students. And, you know, he does like a blackout poetry, you know, where you have like a, well, you, I'm sure you know what it is. For anybody who's listening that doesn't, you have like a text and you black out the words that you don't want and you leave the words that you do want in there to create your poem. Mm. Um, and yet just some of these ideas I found incredibly useful as an English teacher to be able to do that because you really can then like hone in very closely on the language that let's say you're doing a FCE reading part two about the workings of the inner ear um, and it is that boring because <laughs> let's be honest quite often that kind of stuff is maybe not the most interesting material in the world but something they have to have to use and using those activities and doing that and then saying to your students you know you just did poetry um i don't know if it's something that you would like do in the classroom if it's something you have done in the classroom or it's something i mean it's not something i've done in the classroom it's something i've done myself as in blackout poetry and i find it really difficult i, I remember i had the newspaper once and i was just fimble, like fumbling around and all i could write was i love pasta that's all i came out of it I am not a blackout poetry guy. Um, I mean, I play to my strengths and a lot of the way I do it is the way I work. So I read a lot of poetry and that inspires me. And I listen to a lot of music and film. Those are the three things that kind of, because I'm a very visual writer as well. I can see it as I'm writing it. Um, and those are the tools that I use with my students. Of, of course, like we can experiment. And a lot of the time, as I say, if a student wants to come to me and say, I want to play around with this, then we'll do it. Um, but what I fall back on is here's a poem. Uh, Butter was the one that we read recently. I can't remember the poet's name, um, but she, she read at Obama's uh, presidential um, when he was sworn in. She's one of the poets. And her writing is incredible. And we just use that poem about food, about memory, which opened the door to food and memory. And the students weren't writing poems about butter, but they were writing poems about their memories and their food. And that's the way I work. And like, I've done exercises where we listen to music and we just think about it. Um, yeah, that's how I usually work based on how I work as a poet versus as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's no point going unnecessarily comfortable. But sometimes going out of your comfort zone is nice. And like you say, with with blackout poetry, I think for, for me, I'd find it really hard to do. But in the hands of a 12-year-old Spanish kid, I think, I don't know if that might make it easier for them because they have to use the language that's there. Mm. They don't have to invent anything new. Like I can understand, you know, listening to music, whatever inspires you or, you know, reading a poem and seeing where it takes you. 
um, but giving them like these are the words that you're going to need to use or you're going to need to turn them into some form of poem um i don't know for me it, it just seems really appealing but i do I, I, mm. i'm a huge fan of the the music one and, and not even just the music one like you said about the the birds earlier on it's, it's an activity i do with with my my class that i have you know we just we sit in the garden and we listen you know whatever we can hear so you know we can hear running water or we can hear um the birds or we can hear a car go past and then you know we work on that and you know the easiest thing for me is to, to go with haiku and I, I think it's something this is something again dave gave to me uh this idea of writing a haiku before you go to bed just about what you've done mm. just almost as a journal you know you're only writing down about 15 words ish uh, you know you're writing your three lines um and just summarizing your day with with that um it's a nice kind of way of journaling at the end of the day and it's it's a way to encourage i find particularly teenage students to do something because you know you tell them to go home and write a poem they write that they ain't writing a poem it's going to take me more than three minutes and i only have three minutes because i've got tiktok to watch um we all have tiktok to watch come on um <laughs> so yeah that idea of like putting a haiku down just before you go to bed with what you felt that day and you know what's happened that day is again almost like a a release as it were yeah i mean i i think the prompt i like to use is the take the last word of a novel and treat it as the first to, to continue and you as you were speaking about you know giving the students the words um that kind of thing or you know give them the opening line it was the best of times it was the worst of times where did they go with that kind of thing so yeah there's something to kind of you know getting the wheels going and then pushing them off kind of thing and that's as you were saying blackout poetry sustains that so or gives that amazing um well then, Thomas, it has been a pleasure. I, I want to say thank you for, for giving me your time today. Um, I, I feel like I've learned a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading your, your pamphlets, that's for sure. Um, I should have done it before we came on, to be honest, but I, I didn't. Um, I'm, I'm going to be honest, you know. I, you're I, busy. You know, you've well, got things to do. <laughs> people have things to do. It's true. I, I do have a fairly uh, hectic time coming up very shortly. But anyway, um, I did, you know, read about you in other places that I could find. So exactly. yeah, I, I would love to, to read your pamphlet and um, when your novels are available, um, let me know because they, they sound different. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. They're too different. But one day someone will like that difference. But exactly. Yes. One day that difference will be, a you know, nobody liked Harry Potter at first. I'm not um... saying you're going to write the next Harry Potter because you don't have to. That's one of those things, <laughs> one of those books that I was talking about earlier that has... There is so much like fandom. There are so many people like picking into it like, with a fine tooth of saying, this is what she was thinking here. This is what she was thinking here. When I don't know if it's just me um, that thinks maybe for some of those books, I don't think she was thinking at all. She was just like, I've got to write another one. I've got to get it out now. Oh, there's a deadline. There's a deadline. Just throwing down as many words as she can. And don't get me wrong. I don't mind Harry Potter at all. My my daughter is a huge fan. Um, it got so many people reading again. Um, I don't like her as a human. 
although she does pay her taxes, um, which yeah, is nice. There you go. There's, there's one. <laughs> she pays taxes, was the first author billionaire. Um, but yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I'm not expecting you to be the, the next J.K. Rowling. In fact, I hope you don't become the next J.K. Rowling. I um, hope I don't become the next J.K. Yeah, Rowling. She's yeah, she's not a good person. Um, but yeah. Um, um, but yes. Yeah, so that, that idea of uh, I hope somebody does see uh, your books for their worth. Um, and good luck Thank with you. that. Good luck with with all you're doing, and and the people you continue to empower. Um, continue to do so. Um, don't stop empowering. Also, don't stop believing. Um, Any more? <laughs> just singing songs in my head now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think let me find another lyric that I can chuck in there. Don't um, stop something. Don't, don't stop moving to the funky funky beat. That's, that's uh, Club Seven once sang that, didn't they? <laughs> Once um, upon a time. Yeah. Don't mm. stop moving to the S Club beat. Um, there you go. And, and there is some true poetry for you. Um, that, S yeah, Club as, 7. As we were talking about Eminem, S Club 7 are poets. Yeah, they them, are the ultimate everyone. poets. They Spice Girls, yeah, poets. They, you know? they, they definitely wrote all of their own lyrics um, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, they maybe wrote one lyric in the whole thing that one, one line. word yeah um so yeah it's been lovely it's been a pleasure um Thank i will you. be continuing to to follow you on your journey into poetry um and and beyond um so yeah it's been a, it's been a pleasure yeah yeah thank you very much for having me nice to talk to you and an absolute joy yes have a good evening I'll do my best. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been wonderful. I'll be back in a few weeks. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm off on various adventures um, here, there, and everywhere. Um, so thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you in a few weeks. Oh, at a new time, remember. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.